Hello, everyone. Welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum at the intersection of finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a series of digital interviews that we've been doing that originated during this work-from-home period, uh, but given the success and, and the fun that we've had with it, it's going to continue indefinitely. There are a series of interviews we've been doing with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And what we really try to do with this SALT Talk series is replicate the experience that we provide at our SALT conference series uh, that we've done annually in Las Vegas since 2009, as well as in Abu Dhabi, Singapore, and Tokyo. And our goal there is really to provide our audience a window into the mind of subject matter experts, as well as provide a forum and a platform for what we think are big, important ideas that are shaping the future. And today, we're very excited to welcome Ellie Rubenstein to SALT Talks. Uh, Ellie is the co-founder and the CEO of uh, Mana Tree Partners, which is a Vail, Colorado-based investment firm that invests in companies focused on human health and well-being. Uh, Ellie has over 10 years of experience in the uh, asset management industry, including as a partner uh, with a well-known high net worth family office in Los Angeles, as the co-founder of PT Holdings, which is an Arctic asset manager uh, headquartered in Anchorage, Alaska, which is where Ellie is, is coming to us right now, uh, as well as a founding investor of the Alaska Angel Investment Network. As a member of a prominent family of asset managers, Ellie has been involved and mentored in the industry since a young age. Uh, Ellie holds a master's and an MBA in food and agribusiness management. It's a very interesting dual degree uh, program that awards a master's in agricultural economics from Purdue University and an MBA from Indiana University's Kelly School of Business. Uh, while studying at Indiana, uh, she was honored to be accepted into the Tobias Leadership Fellows Program. Uh, Ellie attended her undergrad at Harvard University, where she received a BA in sociology uh, with an honors thesis on philanthropy, and she was also a varsity uh, ski racer at Harvard. Having experienced the healing power of food in the outdoors in her own life, uh, she also earned a graduate certificate in mind-body wellness from UCLA's Center for East-West Medicine and the Simmel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior. Uh, in Ellie's role as, as CEO of Manatree, uh, it includes driving a strong culture towards the firm's billion-dollar vision to revolutionize the food supply chain. Uh, she leads the firm's fundraising efforts and is a member of the investment committee. Her expertise of global food systems and her international network uh, creates meaningful value for Manatree Partners fund investors. Ellie is also an active philanthropist. She was awarded the Presidential Volunteerism Medal and currently serves on the American Red Cross as a lead volunteer advisor for service to armed forces at its national headquarters and as a board member uh, of the Mission and Outreach Committee at the American Red Cross of Alaska. Ellie also serves on various local boards and initiatives focused mainly on military, public policy, health, and education type of initiatives. Ellie is an avid hunter. She's out in Alaska for hunting season right now, as I'm sure we'll talk about on the talk, and a fisherwoman. And she spends much of her free time on the shores or in the woods pursuing different protein sources. She's a self-described foodie and enjoys nothing more than sharing the nutritious food that she has harvested with her family and friends. A reminder, if you have any questions for Ellie during today's SALT talk, you can enter them in the Q&A box at the bottom of your video screen. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Anthony Scaramucci, who's the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, a global alternative investment firm, as well as the chairman of SALT, uh, to conduct the interview. Anthony, take it away. So, Darcy, you and I are the underachievers on this call, okay? I mean, you could have gone on for another two hours on Ellie's exceptional resume, uh, but uh, thank you so much for joining us, Ellie. But forget about your resume for a second and all the other stuff. 
let's focus on that seminal moment when you decided you wanted to be a hunter. How old were you? Uh, what were you doing? And how did it become a lifelong hobby of yours? Well, first of all, thank you for having me. I don't think in my entire life I've ever heard somebody read my resume. Uh, it's a cathartic experience. It felt like I was just attending my funeral. It made me realize maybe I should sleep and not do so much. <laughs> um, but anyways, thank you. You know, that is a really interesting question as I sit here in Alaska. Darcy um, is available for eulogies, by the way. I mean, you know, he's trying to in I the, think you'd uh, make my parents proud if you read we, that at my We want to wait till you're like 150 before we eulogize you, okay? Him and I will be long gone before you leave the planet. All right, but go ahead, keep going. So, um, you know, it's an interesting way to grow up. I don't know that many people know this, but uh, my father's company, uh, they, they actually started with their first deal in Alaska. And um, my mother was pregnant with me at the time. And I guess when they closed the first deal, which was the net operating losses on Alaska Native Corps, uh, they said, we'll bring your family up and you can, we'll celebrate and go to the hunting and fishing lodges. Now, my mother uh, did grow up as an avid outdoorsman. So if you tell a woman that they can go to Alaska, you might not get her to leave. So that's what ended up happening. So I grew up with my mom, mostly in Alaska. Where did your mom grow up, Ellie? So she um, actually was interesting. She's from Nutley, New Jersey, but they moved overseas because my grandfather, uh, he was career Navy. And when he retired, they lived in Paris. He was at ITT France. And um, he actually has 19 patents to his name. He was one of the inventors of GPS technology. So he was an avid fisherman that believed his three daughters should be outsourcing their own food. Um, and my mom's aunt lived in Norway. So she spent summers in Norway hunting and fishing. Um, so she grew up with a very subsistent lifestyle and her mother uh, was a chef. And so, you know, if you were sick in the family, that meant homemade chicken soup where somebody had to go get the chicken and you roasted it down for three days. So in our family, I'm not sure that my father liked that way of raising us because it, it was always about what's the cost per blueberry of what it takes to keep the garden of blueberries. But everything in our family for our meals for Thanksgiving was sourced. That was just really the way we grew up. So I think it was less about hunting and more about my earliest memories were being two years old and, you know, mom throwing us in the car, driving down to St. Michael's, Maryland, where my grandfather became a blue crab, blue, blue crabman um, in retirement. And we were pulling crab lines. And so my brother and I lo love the excitement of pulling crab lines. And we're always finding ways that we could, you know, get up earlier and go dig mussels or dig clams or, you know, help make clams casino for Thanksgiving with the clams we would dig. Those were, those were our memories. And so I think for my father who doesn't actually eat meat, um, my mother was the one who was the hunter, but it was always a proud moment where she would be gone moose hunting for 10 days. And um, when you're a young kid and need homework help and your mom is out moose hunting, you're kind of tough out of luck. And uh, so it was really cool when she would send pictures home of her moose. And I was like, that is awesome. My mom is out moose hunting. So um, I guess the, the long-winded answer to that is, I, I actually learned how to shoot um, at summer camp and I was eight years old and I wasn't a great athlete. So everyone was playing soccer or tennis and they, they had a rifle re-option. So I learned how to shoot at 22 and I liked getting all the ribbons and it came on with the ribbons. And then um, when we were in Europe in the summer with my dad fundraising, they my dad would leave us at the carnival every day and Europe allowed to have also kids to shoot 22s. So I would shoot the 22s for hours and dad would come pick us up and I'd win all these big stuffed animals. So I started to learn like, oh, okay, maybe I'm good at this thing. 
And I do think that women in bed are better shooters. So um, to this day, every big game animal that I've killed, which is, again, I'm a meat eater, not a trophy eater, I've killed in one shot. So I'm very proud of that. And I really, really love sourcing my own food, which is why Mana came about. One last story I'll share with you. Um, I actually just ended a long-term relationship. And I always think back to the pivotal moment of a question he asked me when- Did you, shoot um, him we, we, or did you let him go? Did you shoot him or no? No, you didn't shoot him? I think he wanted me to hunt and fish more than I do, which is hard to imagine. <laughs> I think I, I, I probably misinterpreted the statement I'm about to say. We were out hunting. We were up in the upper Noah attack, which is up in the Arctic. And um, we were sitting on a caribou on a hill, staring for caribou. And I will never forget it. He looked at me and he said, what does Ellie want? I said, well, I just want to hunt and fish and be able to make money doing something similar to this because I'm really happy out here. So I guess I might have misinterpreted that and built a global investment firm. But um, I do think that it always comes back to the roots of how can you bring people to the ethical and humane way of bringing people edible, traceable food. And hunting and fishing is something that m most of our LP base really relates to. It's just the easiest way to source food that you can trace. Well, you know, I'm from a... Uh my dad is from northeastern Pennsylvania, and so he's uh, been hunting and fishing his entire life. And uh, wow. so I learned how to shoot at age 10. You know, I'm wow. a Yorker now, but, uh, you know, I have a uh, Winchester semi-automatic and I have a 12-gauge uh, shotgun, which you wouldn't know about me. I don't really advertise that. But uh, every Friday after Thanksgiving, we were in the woods somewhere tracking deer. Anthony's uh, idea of camping is the four seasons. Let's not kid ourselves here. That's, that's totally true. I'm not I'm not in love with shooting Bambi, to be honest, but that's fine. Everybody's got different views of this stuff. Uh, but I am a big Second Amendment person because I did grow up with guns. So but let's 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 switch gears because I want to talk about obesity and diabetes. I want to talk about plate sizes. And so uh, you know, Michael Milken has a great slide. He shows a diner plate in 1960. It's about this big, Ellie. And then he shows a Olive Garden plate in 2020, and it's about this big, Ellie. And we are eating more, we're consuming more, we're putting antibiotics in our meat. Uh, is this contributing to our high incidence, almost epidemic levels of diabetes? And if it is, what would you say we need to do about it to curb it? Yeah, there, there's no doubt about it. In the last 50 years, our food has changed. But if you go back into history and look at what happened, I, I, I don't think pointing fingers at big food is to blame or big ag, because what they were trying to do back then was feed a growing population in, in a more efficient way. So in many ways, having the technology to get more food was great. You had shelf-stable food, it could uh, be reached, and it was also cheaper. But I also think that the, where people sometimes get wrong is we need to work with big food and ag because those companies have processes and, um, that are at scale, and nobody wants to harm a human being's health. I think that's a misnomer. I don't think a farmer wants to make food that's going to make somebody unhealthy. The, the, the missing link here is that farmers don't work enough with doctors, nor are they um, in tune together. So one of the things that we've really enjoyed with is working with Tufts University and Dr. Darius Muzaparian become a really big mentor to us. And you know what he says is today in the U.S., only 12% of the U.S. population is metabolically healthy. So in the era of COVID, we should be more focused on how do you lower the obesity and diabetes and pre-existing conditions that might exasperate a COVID condition than just talking about hand sanitizers and masks. They, they seem like short-term fix. And I'm not trying to you know, get into the mask game here, but 
But what we, what we need to do is figure out how do you get healthy, cheap, faster food into the hands of people that need it the most. So our firm is not trying to kind of make the wealthier or healthier. They know how to do that. We're really focused on the people that can reach it affordable. So honestly, big food plays a part in that. And we need to clean up the ingredients in the accessible, cheaper food for the average person. Um, one more thing on that. It's not just the U.S. The, the Middle East uh, actually has some of the highest rates of diabetes. I sometimes point my blame on my father's company because um, in the heydays of private equity, they were exporting a lot of our fast food chain. And fast food you know, wasn't ever made to be healthy, but it wasn't about harming human health, I don't think we actually clearly understood the linkages between human health and poor diet until the last five years. And, um, and as Mike Milken says, who both you and I obviously really well respect, you know, when we were starting, he said, food is where the internet is 15 years ago. That's how fast the transformation of the food and ag supply chain is, is happening. And it's global um, because we do need to, food is a, is a global supply system. And so where the ingredients are, where the production is, and where the end consumer is, we need global trade in order to make it healthier. So what does it look like? Let's, let's paint the picture of 2030 for food. What does it look like? What would you like it to look like? What is it going to look like? What do we need to do to make it look more like the way you would like to see it? The simple statement is this, it's harder to achieve, but what we would like to see is in the US, seven out of the 10 uh, causes of death are linked to lifestyle. And the number one of that is uh, poor diet and nutrition. So the only way we can start to reduce the causes of death being away from, it's not just cancer or heart attacks, we are focused on the links of poor health. And so how can we make sure that the human health outcomes can be linked to diet and nutrition? And frankly, people can be incentivized to be healthy. You know, I would love to see a system where it's not just a carbon tax, but where is the reward for being healthy? You know, we all pay health insurance premium, but you're being paid to go to the doctor. So why, why can't there be something a reward for purchasing healthy food, which might cost a little bit more or getting your steps in? And so I think that large insurance companies are actually playing a part of this. You know, the fact that John Hancock has a vitality product now, which incentivizes you to live healthy, not incentivizes you to die. We have to change the whole incentive system. Changing the behavior, Anthony, is the hardest thing. You can't just all of a sudden tell somebody for 70 years of bad eating that they're going to eat healthier. My father is a classic example. He grew up on vending machine food. He's not overnight going to crave you know, healthier food. But if you change the incentives as well as change ways to get to them and target healthy lifestyles, that's what we have to preach. So it's it's a trifold model we'd love to see happen. We'd love to see more informed capital come into the space with better investment metrics linking ESG and health outcome. We'd love to see policy changes. Um, and we'd also love to see an education around nutrition. The average person doesn't really know what a nutrition label is and what they should be eating. Well, I have sympathy for your dad because I grew up on Howard Johnson's fried clams on Wednesday nights. It was a all-you-can-eat buffet. And so I, I get it. Uh, your first two investments, uh, Vital Farms and Birdie Farms, focused on sustainable farm products and animal proteins to consumers. So what is the future of plant-based foods and how do we scale that to meet the needs of this growing population? 
One of the interesting things, so we have four companies in our portfolio today, and two are plant-based and two are other proteins, eggs and beef. And in the plant-based space, I think what people have to understand is what where the plant-based movement is, is actually using these ingredients for meat analogs, which means that people still want to eat meat, but they want more plants in it. So um, I think what mycotechnology has done well is they've built out a plant at scale that uses fermentation. So this is food science at its best. How can we get mushrooms? ferment them down so that they're usable ingredients um, to make uh, big brands healthier. Our, our chickpea company is the same thing. It's using chickpeas and it's really in the better for you snack product. But I think that what Vital and Verde have done is they've given a model for farmers that um, is, you know, it's, it's pure conscious capitalism in a multi-stakeholder approach. And so it's a win for farmers uh, because they actually are now paid the highest per capita of any farmers. Um, they feel aligned with the brand and company that matches their ethics. And so in today's world, Anthony, 77% of consumers are making purchases that they think are going to attribute to their personal health, but it doesn't stop with the halo health effect. 62% um, of them want ethical companies, and then 55% of them want animal welfare. And so animal welfare doesn't necessarily mean being vegetarian. It means being humane because it's clear now that the ESG linkages, if you treat the environment and the animal well, you will get healthier food. So I think that's what we've been trying to say, and it doesn't matter if it's eggs or beef or even seafood. If the farmers, ranchers, or fishermen are paid well, if the land is actually utilized well in a circular economy way, you are going to get a higher brand and a traceable product that consumers will purchase. So a, a, a book your dad actually recommended to me was called Spillover by David Quammen. I don't know if you had a chance to read that book, but in the book, i just interested in your comment on this. Uh, the thesis of the book is a population, human population of 1 billion, we're sort of okay with the ecosystem. As we get to seven, seven and a half billion, we're starting to now spill over into the animal kingdom. And so, you know, we're deforesting, we're doing some aggressive things to the environment, obviously carbon dioxide emissions, et cetera. Uh, but one of the things that's happening is you're getting these zootropic transfers of viruses from the animal kingdom to us as mammals. Uh, and so the question, I want you to react to that. Uh, is that impacting the way we're food sourcing? Is the abundance of success that human beings have had on planet Earth, and as we head towards 9 or 10 billion people in terms of population, what kind of pressure is that putting on the planet? So the statement might be controversial, but I think back to uh, my first day at Purdue in the MSA BA program, and I'm, it was I'm our non-controversial. So I would appreciate you not making controversial statements on our. So I'll talk as that you know, you know, I don't like controversy at all. I just wanted to point that out to you. You, you are you are an amazing human being. You've taught uh, me to stand up for for my beliefs. Is what you've done. Uh, so, right. um, the more controversial, the better, Ellie. Let's go here. Here was when, it, you know, when you're at, at Harvard, right, and you're trained and you're taking economics classes, um, it's a different viewpoint of the professors in economics versus Purdue. And I love Harvard. My cousin is a professor of economics there. But when you're in a master's program of agriculture economics and day one of your world trade class, the professor says, well, here's the report on how do you feed the world by 2050. But you need to go into the data and actually look at what the report says. And so when they train you as research to go in and look at the data, 
you would say, wait a second, are we really running out of food? And it's very clear that that report was somewhat biased. Um, and so the mismatch is actually is uh, where the food is produced versus where it's needed. And so it's a supply and demand uh, mismatch. And so that's why most people in agriculture are very much fans of the global trade economy, because I don't know if you know this, Anthony, but most of the beef consumed in this country is not actually uh, from the US. We import beef. So we export our high quality beef and we import shitty beef and that's what we're eating. And so when you start looking at the trade flows of food, you say, well, that's interesting. And so our beef company is a great example of that. It's actually uh, sourced in Uruguay. And, and the reason being is that you get four times the amount of production down there because mm -hmm. the sunlight is year round and, and it's open pastures and open grazing. They don't even call it pasture raised or grass fed beef. It's just beef. That's what the environment is. And so what we've tried to do is go around the world and say, well, where are the best growing practices and environmental conditions? And honestly, we don't really focus on the negativity. We look at the models that are working. And so when COVID hit and 80% of the US beef processors shut down, we were focused on the 20%, which are the small producers that didn't have to shut down because they had great worker condition. You know, the facilities were never jam packed to start with. So it really starts with the culture. In, in Vital Farms case, you know, they're a 12 year old company. They've never had an issue of salmonella and they say it's due to strict quality controls. So that's where I think it's the culture of these firms that we're really looking at of how do you make sure that it's ethical worker condition? Um, because we know that you can focus on deforestation, you can focus on overfishing, but I'm sitting here in Alaska today and I can tell you I have had more fish to be able to feed our investors, feed my family in my entire lifetime. I have never seen so much fish, but yet all the headlines say there's no fish in Alaska. It's warming. Where are the fish? Wildfires. Well, it wasn't a warm summer here. It's been 55 and raining almost the whole summer, and I've never seen so many fish. So I think if you look back in the Bible, you know, our name is Manatree, food from heaven. For years, there's always been cyclical storms, but, but animals are the most adaptable human beings. And so our beef company CEO is in Alaska right now, he's family vacation, and I took him to ground zero of salmon spawning ground. I wanted him to see where the salmon are produced, right? It's very controversial right now. It's in Bristol Bay with the pebble mine. They said, have you ever seen a spawning salmon? It's a phenomenon my father's never seen. He always talks about salmon have the greatest sex lives. They go up river, they spawn, they're very happy. It's actually a pretty cool thing to see a bright red salmon spawning. And he said, but take a look at the bear over there. You know, we share the salmon with the bears. And I think by studying the animals is a better way to do it. The, the biologists now are saying they're seeing bears in places they've never seen. And the fish are here. You know, they came in late, but that's because we had the coldest winter on record in Alaska. So everything was shifted by a couple of weeks. So animals are very, very adaptable. But, you know, I'm not going to say last summer. It wasn't sad when we had the warmest summer. And I saw 25 dead fish in the river. Salmon, you know, it's all about water temperatures and um, they will have heart attacks. So I don't know. I try to focus focus on the, on the positives of what we see and the systems that work and the fishermen and farmers that have such strong beliefs in, in making it right than the negatives in the world. All right. Well, I'm going to give John Dorsey uh, a chance to get off that salmon porn website that he's looking at. I'm going to ask one more question and then I'll open it up to audience participation. So, uh, but my one last question is about understanding Eastern medicine. Uh, does it help us be healthier in the Western world? Give us some of your thoughts and perspectives on that before we go to John. You know, I've 
grown up in a very privileged life with parents that were willing to pay whatever it costs for medical issues. Um, I was born with a genetic hearing loss. I'm actually 37% deaf. And that hearing loss, it turned out to my nervous system. I went back and counted. I've been to 40 years. Ellie or just on one side? Both in its genetic. And uh, I think that's why my taste buds got amplified. So I love food. (laughs) I don't know what what happened, but... um, yeah, it's genetic, and um, but it's also in my nervous system. And so, what that meant is my sensitivities are much higher. It doesn't it, my my hundred percent Ashkenazi Jewish heritage? Um, I I really had allergies like you've never seen, and I've had now two life or death attacks. One being a traumatic brain injury, and one being a food allergy. Um, and I don't think you're given much more time to live. But as somebody who's been to forty doctors and had to relearn how to walk and talk with a traumatic brain injury, and I've had multiple concussions, multiple ski racing injuries. Uh, the doctors and the best names in the hospitals weren't solving my problems. So my father recently was visiting and he said, I think your mother did a good thing for you by getting you to move to Alaska because it got me off all medicines, all brain stuff. And uh, I'll credit my, my uh, ex partner here, but if you put me in a plane and stare at glaciers, my anxiety will go away. If you put me on medicine, all you've done is made me obsessed about, am I taking the medicine and so much focus on a pharma type of world. So the culture we've built at our firm, wilderness, wellness, and well-fed has really been around a lifestyle that I've seen has worked for myself and really focus on a bottoms up approach about how do we share that with other people. And it's transformative to build a work culture where you have 10 healthy employees. We pay for team workouts. We, you know, it feels more like a business athlete environment, but you watch everybody else be transformed when they take a weekend off they go you know hunt with their grandfather in Kansas it's so much a part of who we are that being in the wilderness um, and living in a place where we're not just the healthiest county per capita but it is who we are and so we preach and live the lifestyle that the farmers and ranchers and fishermen live so um, you know part of going back to UCLA was actually uh, conquering a brain injury Um, I was sick of being the patient. When you have a traumatic brain injury, it's the most selfish thing you can do of just every day focusing on yourself. It it, it was really a horrible mental experience. And um, so I wanted to go back and conquer that. And instead of being the patient of my neuropsych, be his student. And uh, so it was it was more of a personal thing. And I also credit my mother who really healed me with nutrition. I, I really couldn't eat. I, my digestive system didn't work. So you're either on feeding tubes or unhealthy food in hospitals. And she just said, how about homemade uh, moose bone broth? Or in my case, I got really depressed and, you know, homemade salmon salmon eggs as, as you know, it's not caviar. It's basically an omega-3 pill. So I've lived the food as medicine lifestyle in in our family, every time something goes wrong, it's usually you need to go see mom in Alaska. She'll put you on the moose diet for two weeks and you feel better. So well, it's it's very much core to who I'm we are. And mom, I'm coming to yeah. see mom. I, I could use it a is. moose diet in my life, but you look amazing. You're doing amazing work. I have to turn it over to John Darcy, okay? He's chomping at the bit here for questions, but uh, sure. I think you have an amazing life story and I think you're making an amazing contribution to everybody. And, uh, and I'm going to point out there, I'm a very proud investor and managed partner. So thank you thank for including you. me. Go ahead, thank Mr. Dorsey. Thank you. You know, I get irritable when you, when you leave me out of the conversation. So I'm excited to jump in and Ellie, I can relate you know, somewhat to what you're talking about. I haven't experienced any uh, major health issues, but during the pandemic, for example, it was, it was becoming a lot. I have three young kids. We were cooped up here uh, in the house in New York and we escaped out to uh, my wife's family's ranch in Colorado. And it was definitely a, uh, a great experience and just, just helps with your mental health to, uh, to live out in wilderness a little bit. Um, 
So I want to go back to the idea of conscious capitalism um, that you alluded to earlier. It's, it's an idea that is sort of pervading all of finance right now. There's so many mandates that come from institutions and families and high net worth individuals looking to, to tailor their investments to ESG or sustainability. And this idea of conscious capitalism um, is something that interests me. Could you talk a little bit more about what that means and, and why investors are so drawn to that idea? You know, when we started, people wanted to label us as an impact fund. And uh, my father was, and, and many mentors were really saying, don't do it. Because what you need to do is show people you can get the same level of returns with the aspects of the deals that you're looking at. So uh, we've never labeled our firm one way or another. We don't say ESG. If anything, we're trying to label our firm as a health firm, um, proving out the linkages of nutrition and health. And I think that conscious capitalism is rising. I'm also gonna give a shout out to Anthony's son. And um, you know, in our investor base, 30% are women, 20% are next gen that wrote their first ever check into a fund. But out of 130 investors, I will point out 55 of uh, our family offices or institutions we work with, there's a, a next generation family member that's active. And I think that what we tried to do is say to the next generation where maybe things um, of, of you know, conscious capitalism is already part of their daily life. We tried to give them a tangible way that they can show their parent their this is a real asset class. And so, in our dream world, a portfolio would have energy and healthcare in a you know within a private equity allocation, which on average is usually about 20%, but how that gets broken up, we would love to see food as an asset class. Um, it, it, it really does touch almost every part of the ecosystem, whether that's healthcare or energy or consumer, um, and, and it has returns. I think that our whole thing has been, we're focused on growth stage, we'd like to be the last capital in, and we're actually trying to shorten the time horizon of exits because the, the demand is there and we see the capital. Um, so that's why we're writing larger checks. I think that's a big part of proving out conscious capitalism is it's not just the venture ecosystem, which has been extremely well-funded. The Ag Funder report just came out, I think last night for the mid-year report, and so far $2.9 billion invested in this year alone, which will outpace last year. That's great, but I think what we look for is the firms that like S2Gs of the world and what Lucas Walden has done is incredible putting that much money into the space but we're trying to write the 30 to 50 million dollar checks because what we know is that the buyers actually need profitable companies they don't want to pay to acquire customers and so in order to be profitable in that scale it takes private equity level checks that can get it to that last stage so I can't talk too much about Vital Farms we're still in our silent period but I think it was a very uh, it was a very good indicator that the public markets value um, what we would say ethical and ed edible companies. That is the heart of conscious capitalism. So what level of investment ultimately is it going to take to transform the food system globally and, and get it to the point where, uh, you know, we are both treating the environment well and, and able to cater to those who are looking for healthier food options? For people that are listening and want to invest in food, jump in. This is a trillion dollar problem that we have to solve. You know, it's not just feeding the world, it's feeding them faster, better, and cheaper. So as we always say in our investment thesis, we look at four areas. So we look at the primary resource, meaning the land itself. Um, we look at the processing of it. We look at the distribution, which is the logistics, and we look at the consumer brand. And in food, if you look at e-commerce over the last five years, 
all e-commerce not including food was 20%. And you know how fast e-commerce has changed our shopping and buying behaviors. But today, uh, food is only 3% of e-commerce. So things like Amazon acquiring Whole Foods, um, that is what is needed to transform this. The direct-to-consumer buying behaviors that we're seeing right now in COVID, I mean, the supply chains just don't exist. If you say, well, how can I get you, you know, healthy salmon from Alaska to your doorstep in Long Island, that fish would be touched nine times before it reached your plate. It should be three, but that's how many middlemen there are. And so we're having to redo entire markets, you know, in seafood, 80% of the markets were usually going to food service. And that's not just restaurants, that's schools, that's hospitals, it's hotels. And so it, you can't just get that product in a grocery store today. You have to redo packaging, you have to redo supply chains. So anyone's background is needed in this space. You know, it's pivoting manufacturing processes that can produce more direct to consumer type packaging. So um, it, it's for somebody who's young, I'm 30. This is a 30 year problem that we can stay as a niche asset manager laser focused on solving this problem. And we need everybody's help and collaboration like Anthony um, and investors that are willing to open up distribution channels and relationships to help scale these food companies. Yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, I, I, we were talking before we went live about we have a lot of uh, young families in places like the Middle East who, who uh, recognize that it's an issue in those societies as well and are, are committing a significant amount of capital towards addressing these issues. Yeah, one comment on that is first time I went to um, Middle East, I was on a Milk and Mina panel and it was fascinating. The other panelists, uh, her name, she's the minister of food security. It, they don't call it a minister of ag there because food security is the problem. They import 90% of their food to that region. That's not sustainable. So I think the Middle East has been one of our um, most beloved LP groups because the next generation sees that they need to transform their own food. It's not just that it's unhealthy. They need to produce food. Right. So we have a, a question from a member of the audience who I, I think might be based in the Middle East is asking about your feelings about the clean meat market or lab grown meat. I know, you know two of the uh, early companies you've invested in are involved in sort of sustainable agriculture. Two of them are, are uh, plant-based, healthier eating options. Can you talk a little about that clean meat market and lab-grown meat? Yeah, we're not an expert in it. Um, it's still earlier stage. So I think many of the food and ag venture firms are the ones writing those checks. We certainly eye it and we look at it. Um, but from our standpoint, it doesn't meet our investment criteria today, which tends to usually be a company is profitable, has 10 million in revenue, positive EBITDA margin, and can scale. So um, we look at it. I, you know, there was on that same panel in the Middle East, I think it was the founder of Just, and I think the cost per chicken nugget at the time was about $1,000. So it's kind of where the first computers or iPhones were when they were really expensive, but we need more capital to be able to get the cost of production down. So they'll get there. I would say give it a few more years until the costs come down. Um, and, you know, Bill Gates and others have done a great service to the food economy by willing to invest from a science standpoint, not just from a return standpoint. So it really is true adventure capital. But we also uh, know that, you know, meat companies willing to invest in disruptive technology are, are so we're grateful for them in the food system because in a few years it really is at scale and it will help feed developing worlds where frankly there just is not enough protein right now so the science is the most fascinating and I think seeing people that want to be food scientists and pivot careers and enter this um, is really to me the most noble calling it's not just a farmer it's how do you feed the world using your science background right 
And just going back, I know you commented on mycotechnology a little bit uh, in the conversation about sustainable agriculture. Uh, two of the companies you invested in, mycotechnology, Nutriadio, they're using plant-based uh, sciences to create healthier consumer products. You know, could you talk a little bit more about what each of those companies is doing and what you think sort of the future holds for plant-based foods? Yeah, Microtech is uh, near and dear to my heart. It existed before Manatree when I was writing my capstone at Purdue on plant-based proteins and investing in food. And we looked at a couple hundred companies. I was trying to prove this out to my own family saying, instead of having, you know, I just want a small allocation to invest in food deals. This is my interest area. And it was the only one that really I felt like could, could meet our criteria. So, um, you know, we, we, we transferred it at cost from my family office. It was, you know, one of our first deals proof of concept. And I think it's allowed us to learn and to see what big food wants. Most of the investors are big food. So you have General Mills, um, you have a Genomoto who's using it as an MSG replacement. Um, you have Kellogg's. And so they're both investors and customers. I mean, it really gave us an eye into what we were seeing. Um, and, and so what it does is it basically it's using craft beer technology of fermentation. And so anybody ever wants to go right next to the Denver airport, you can go and see they have, you can observe what this looks like. It's fermentation tanks to ferment the mushroom. When we started, I think they were only using three different types of mushrooms. Um, and there's upwards of 57 they can do. So COVID's allowed them to pivot a little bit in a good way um, because mushrooms are known for immunity. And so they're able to get this more into a national supplement. So um, their, their products today are B2B. Um, and so one of them is, is pure taste. The other one clear taste and so mushrooms naturally lower sugar so it's both a, a a dual product in that it's a plant-based product protein and lower sugar so it really is good in that the texture is there um, the health components are there and it's actually pretty cheap um, because it's mushrooms it's you know they're a fungus so we're really excited about myco and it really showed us that for us, where we want to play in the plant-based space is the ingredient space, um, because right now there's only really one to four ingredients being used in most of these plant-based products, and there could be upwards of 40. So we're focused on the innovation of that and the technology of the processing, but not changing the actual ingredient. On Nutriati, it's pretty similar, but it's just using chickpeas. Um, and what we found is that um, it can also be in the better for you snack category. I'd say another main differentiator is it's branded. Um, so when you buy a Vienna chickpea puff, it does say using artesia flour. But we're very enthusiastic about that. That's why there's two of these companies in our portfolio. They don't really compete. They have different customer bases. Um, and I'd say, you know, we are always eyeing uh, the next best superfood as an ingredient. All right. So it sounds like we're just sort of scratching the surface of, of what plant-based foods is ultimately yep. going to look like, you know, 10, 20 years from now. I want to, before we let you go, Ellie, and we could talk for hours about this stuff because I, you're so passionate and knowledgeable about it, but uh, I want to talk a little bit about your philanthropy work. So as I mentioned in the open, uh, you had a long list of different philanthropic causes that you support. Uh, what are the causes that are most uh, important to you and that you're the most passionate about? And why has philanthropy been such an important thing to you in your life? I was raised with two really philanthropic parents, um, not in the way of rich people writing checks. I think my grandmother was the original philanthropist. You know, every mail that comes to her, she would write a $5 check. She was so worried that you know, she might not go to heaven if she didn't write that check. So when she died, 
we had like 450 causes. We had to, you know, cancel the five to $20 checks. So that's how my dad grew up. And my mother is no different. She's like the mother Teresa. So um, I can go hunting with her around any native village in Alaska. And they're so grateful for her for always buying the artwork and showing up with groceries or computers. So service is really a big part of our mentality. We don't view it as philanthropy. We view it as volunteerism. Um, and I think both my parents always tried to show us that, you know, we had everything, but you know, when your parents every day ask you, not what did you just learn in school today, but who did you help? Um, that's really core to us. So I've kind of really been able to strengthen my philanthropy. Um, I, I don't really need anything to live. And so I'm focused on Maslow's hierarchy of needs of food, water, and shelter. And so that allows me to put most of my other remaining time and efforts into helping other people. Um, I view it as a bottoms up approach. If we can invest more in the people that are producing, you know, our food, that brings me great pleasure. And so, um, you know, I have a donor advice fund. Um, we are also, I will tell you, uh, getting ready to launch a research arm within our own firm. Um, we've had some early success. And I think that the three co-founding partners, we, we really view this now as um, the more you make, the more you get to give. And so I think it's a different mindset. Um, I, I am really religious. I do believe in that, in that principle, the more you give, the more you get. And I think it just opens up a whole new door. So while I have a donor advised fund, it's called Mission Ingredients. It's been traditionally for the last 10 years, really more so focused on Red Cross and military just from my own personal life. Um, but now what I've been able to do is expand that into supporting different research efforts um, and combine that with data so that we can actually get better industry knowledge. Um, and so more to come on that. Um, and then I really would say that it's venture philanthropy. I've tried to study some of the best models out there of next generation. Um, I would say billionaires that are really struggling with the same issues. How do I make a family legacy that's unique to mine? And I think the venture philanthropy model works. It doesn't matter if it's stand together. If you look at the Arnold, um, Venture philanthropy works because sometimes it's for profit and sometimes it's nonprofit. I'll give the example of fishermen. Um, the average fisherman, you know, it costs two hundred fifty thousand dollars to be able to buy a boat and have a commercial permit. That's a lot of money for a twenty-three-year-old. And so, if you can find ways to help them, you know, buy their quota or um, support them in other ways. It's more of a venture philanthropy aspect, open new market. Um, and so I'm really focused on, on the population of farmers, ranchers, fishermen, and the military, and those that can we can be able to link the health halo effects with livelihoods. So um, as I kind of rebrand my philanthropy for the next 10 years, it's research and data, it's population health, as well as livelihood. And those are the three things that mean a lot to me. Um, and really, I I would say, encourage people to get out there. Volunteer, spend time with people you don't know because you would be amazed what skill sets it brings back to your own firm for creativity and ideas. Um, I, when I, you fundraise for a living, you can almost feel inauthentic when you're just selling food. And so if you can bring stories about how you relate to the people that you're trying to work with, um, it's not just more authentic, authentic, it's credible, it's realistic. And so philanthropy really gives you the tools to actually move your for-profit uh, world forward. And if it, that's the one thing I could make everybody realize, get involved, give back. Um, it will give more to you than probably just you are giving to them. Well, it's fascinating stuff, and it's amazing what you've accomplished uh, in 30 uh, young years and, and the way you've interwoven all of your philanthropic causes with what you're now doing with Manatree. Uh, so congratulations on all your success, and I'll leave it to Anthony if he has a final word. Anthony, you still there? He's on mute. I'm, I'm muted because I was eating high-protein eggs, and I want you guys to eat <laughs> Do you really? Uh, hold on, is the yolk yeah. orange? Or am yes. I getting in trouble for yeah, doing this? Yeah, you got to get that that uh, orange yolk. That's how you know it's real.
So, but in any event, I just want to say thank you, Ellie, and uh, continue your great success. And hopefully, we, as I said, everybody, we get you to one of our live events. We had you at Salt Abu Dhabi, where you were fantastic. And hopefully, we'll get you to a uh, an event in North America before too long, once the pandemic ends. But uh, wish you and great maybe success. I can. Uh... Can I visit you in Long Island and we can go hunting again? It's time for you to get that rifle you, out. You can't really hunt here on Long Island, but I can we take you. We got to go the other direction. I could take you. We got to come out to Alaska. Yeah, there you I go. Take you to northeastern Pennsylvania. Perfect. We're upstate New York by Wyndham, where I have a house. You would, that you would sounds amazing. There. Yeah. That sounds amazing. I will make sure to send you some fresh uh, meat bring, and fish as a thank you. We bring Darcy's grandmother in law. Okay, she's probably the best shot in the nation. Okay, she's gonna when I run for president, she's gonna be my vice president. She's already committed because she's so hard right. I'm gonna need to galvanize the hard right. Okay, and so I'm gonna need her help. And she's somebody I've known since I was the age of 13. Okay, so we'll bring her along with us. How's that? I'm on the uh, Anthony for president ticket too. Really, I, I mean that what you've done with yeah, salt and bringing people together and taking chances on young entrepreneurs like myself um, and really giving us a microphone is is um, I'll, I'm forever loyal to you. It's incredible. Um, thank well, you. I'm, really I'm running. The only presidency I'm running for is to be president of your fan club, Ellie. And so thank you for everything and good luck up there. Enjoy the rest of the summer. Thank you. Same to you. Thank <laughs> you.